Hey everyone, Miranda here. Today's guest is a gift to the podcast, and you're soon going to find out why. Emanuela Israel is an extremely talented self-taught artist in her 20s whose beautiful work is infused with messages of empowerment and body positivity. We found each other online when I was in search of an artist to collaborate with on an upcoming project. Although we haven't met yet in person, we have developed a strong connection in part because of the similar creative work we do and also our personal backgrounds. I think Emanuela has wisdom well beyond her age, and she tells a story of trauma and healing that I'm confident you will find meaning in. She's also just a pleasure to listen to. Enjoy this one. I really did. Here on Truth and Consequences of the podcast, we talk about navigating the aftermath of trauma, and we talk about this subject of re-victimization, and you have a really interesting and poignant story to tell us that relates to these topics. So I'm just going to let you go ahead and tell us your story. Okay. Thank you. Um, I grew up in an environment that was very isolated. Since the age of five, I can remember witnessing the physical abuse of my mother at the hands of my father, as well as emotional and verbal abuse between the two of them. Um, Before going into this, I'd like to say that I do have two siblings, an older Mm -hmm. sister and a younger brother. So we lived in the same house. We were all born six years apart and have very different memories of our experiences and the ways that they've affected us emotionally and psychologically. So the perspective I'm giving is mine alone. Um, I'm claiming the story that I'm telling today is my own personal truth. Okay, thank you. That's very fair. And that's good to know part of your background too. So, um, okay. So so you lived with both of your parents in the Chicago area, right? You said? Yeah, we live in Chicago. Um, My parents still live together. And I remember actually wishing from a very early age that my parents would get a divorce. Um, or at least a separation, because then they could both have a chance at being happy. And in turn, I could have a chance at being happy. But both my Mm -hmm. parents have always been rooted in this belief that once you're married, you don't split up. You've made your decision to spend the rest of your life with this person. And however the cookie crumbles is the repercussion of that decision. Okay. And you said they're still together today? Yeah, Yeah, they're still together today, um, living in the same house, in the same situation. Obviously, time has taken a toll on them. They're both older. Mm-hmm. It's not as much of a tumultuous environment as it was when I was younger. But um, it's still, there's a lot of hate mm-hmm. still ruminating there, a lot of resentment, which is partially why I needed to move. Um, I used the opportunity of going to college and um, moving on in my career as an opportunity to leave behind a place that had so much negativity still living in the walls. Okay. And do you want to give us a little bit of a, a picture of what that was like for you, like what you were hearing and seeing as a child? Of course. So um, my earliest memory was when I was five. And I remember being ready for my first day of kindergarten. I had on my little overalls and I was so excited. Um, and I left my room and I saw my dad was holding my mom by the throat um, against the front door. And 
I started crying and there was a bit of a scuffle. And I actually ended up not going to my first day of kindergarten because my mom was so scarred by the incident that my dad went to work and we stayed home. That being my earliest memory, you can kind of see where um, I'm coming from in terms of this was a household divided. We were very isolated from my extended family. Um, All of the things that were happening under that roof were kind of kept under wraps. Okay. Um, Your mom was maybe pressured to keep it quiet? Yeah. Um, It stems from, I think, all of the women in my family. Um, Let me see if I can phrase this the right way. Hmm. Well, I guess my question was assuming that your dad would be pressuring your mom to keep quiet about it and that your dad would be contributing to the isolation, but I'm getting the impression that maybe that came from within your mom's extended family too. Yeah. um, It was actually, my mom was very vocal with her mother, my grandmother and my great grandmother about what was going on. Um, My mother is more of a introverted woman, so she never really had many close female friends in her life Mm -hmm. that she could turn to for advice or comfort. Um, But the problem was that my mom's side of the family loved my father and they loved him to a fault because they had fallen in love with this mask that he always wore around them. So by all appearances, he was a great partner and a great father. And they chose to stand by that despite my mother being very forthright with them about the abuse that she was going through. Um, My grandmother, who has since passed, would always tell my mother not to do things that she knew would upset my father. And my great-grandmother, who's still currently alive, swears that even after all these years, the two made an oath before God and that they should still be working every day to find love for each other. So you can assume that this is extremely painful for my mom that her own family deny. Yes. What a complete lack of support and a lack of loyalty, right? Which is a whole second level of betrayal and clearly victim-blaming. The statements yeah, about deny how, her. Yeah, and, and to, to tell her that she could do something different. I mean, we know that that's completely unfair and unrealistic. I mean, your story of the kindergarten first day, and it's just so heartbreaking, and it's a true trauma for you. Here you were, what, five years old? And what you were seeing yeah. had to be traumatizing. That was my, yeah, that's my earliest memory. And I feel like there was, definitely a domino effect because to have my own mother's family deny her right to grieve for like this dead relationship she had with my father, as well as deny her that support that she should be getting from her blood family and the way that we view family in our culture and our society, um, that obviously affected the way that I view family and relationships and trust bonds. I'm not very close to my extended family because of this, mm-hmm. which in a way has also isolated me. Yeah. Um, I think their victim-blaming attitudes, though, came from generations of women who've been abused and had to just push through. Okay. My grandmother and great-grandmother came from failed marriages um, after living in dysfunction, but Mm -hmm. it took their partners officially leaving to end things. The women on my mother's side of the family always kind of had to hustle to provide for their kids despite Mm -hmm. it. So I don't think they ever really learned the best way to navigate abusive relationships. Mm -hmm. So in turn, they never internalize their own trauma. 
were those relationships with your grandmother and your great grandmother were those also abusive relationships in your estimation? Yeah, it was. Um, there was neglect and physical and verbal abuse to the same degree that my mom went through, and mm. it it makes sense. How could they acknowledge my mother's pain without having to go back in retrospect and acknowledge their own when they've been denying it for so long? It's a defense mechanism that I think women have had to develop for a long time, the ignoring, deflecting, and minimizing the problem to make it more palatable and just Mm -hmm. to survive. I think that's a really powerful and astute point that runs through, you know, the kind of work that I've been doing with the second wound and anything anything similar like this where, yeah, how can you have compassion for someone when you can't have compassion for yourself because you can't look at it, right? Exactly. Yeah. Did you, do you feel like you always understood that this dynamic was wrong? I mean, you talk about wanting your parents to divorce because you knew that this wasn't a healthy situation. Do you think that part of you took longer to understand it? Um, Tell me more about that, about like your perspective of your parents and your extended family. And, And is that something that you came to over time? Or do you feel like you always understood that? Well, when I was younger, I was estimate around seven or eight there were times when my mom would come into my room at night and she would be crying and she would say you know this is never the life that I wanted for you I'm so sorry and so we kind of developed a friendship relationship very early in a way that might not have been completely healthy but it was all that I knew Mm -hmm. so my mom disclosed a lot of more adult themes to me when I was really young, like this idea of your father and I are not in love and this isn't what love looks like. And like, I'm being hurt and you should never let anyone treat you this way. Those aren't usually conversations that you would share with a child when they're so young, because Mm -hmm. the way that children's brains absorb those kind of ideas, like we're so sensitive at that age. But because of that, I matured really quickly because I felt like because my mom didn't have her own support system or friends to talk to, then that was my job. I had to be there for her in whatever ways that she needed that emotional support. So I had to understand what was going on in our house in a really adult way early on in life. And Mm -hmm. so um, I would say even like before middle school, like maybe a year before middle school, early middle school, I was really, um, I had taken it upon myself to try to mend my parents' relationships. Like I would mm-hmm. go on walks with my dad or car rides with my dad and I would just be in tears asking him like, why can't you guys fix this? Why don't you communicate what's going on? And that left me open and vulnerable to psychological abuse on my dad's part of this idea of having to choose a parent or choose a side Mm-hmm. And someone is lying on someone else. Um, so I was kind of like a third in their relationship in this like toxic game of tug and war. Uh-huh. And I don't think that my mother meant for that to happen. I just think that she had no one else to turn to. And I don't think she would have made it as long as she had without harming herself if she hadn't had me to talk to. Mm -hmm. But I do think that my dad used that relationship that I had with my mom um, to try to pit us against each other and kind of feed things in my ear, saying that there were things that I didn't know about and to kind of make me second guess 
the relationship I built with my mom. So yeah, because you had yeah. opened up that conversation by saying, you know, I want you guys to do better. I want you to be the parents I need you to be. Why can't you? And so he answered right. the question in the only way uh, that sounds like is his personality, which isn't to take responsibility for it. Um, and that must right. have been confusing for you, was it? Did it take you a long time to kind of unravel these things, these different perspectives it that he was did. giving you? It definitely did. Um, I think that while I was still younger, like middle school and high school age, I was so caught up in figuring out how to help my parents' marriage and therefore maybe help our family stay together that I didn't even internalize all the abuse I was enduring at the same time. Mm -hmm. It wasn't until college where I had, I had given therapy a try because you're allowed like eight therapy sessions mm -hmm. um, within my university for free. Mm -hmm. And I didn't have the best therapy experience because I think it takes longer than eight sessions to find the right therapist, let alone really get to the nitty gritty sure. of things in your life. But um, that was the first time in my life I started thinking about how all of this had affected me because I was so caught up in how it was affecting them and our family as a whole. But I had ha taken no time to think about how I was coping, if I was coping, and the ways that I was kind of, I had developed PTSD from being so active in their toxic relationship. That makes sense. And as well as that, you are witnessing abuse. And yeah. when abuse is in a household, no moment is ever truly safe, right? Because you always know that the possibility is there for it to erupt into domestic violence. Right. Right. So that in itself means that as a child, you're always on alert and that's traumatizing. Yes. It's just a low level of, you know, always being careful. And it, it's, it's a little like a war zone in a sense, right? I was always afraid. Yeah. While other kids were worrying about like, I, I was, and again, it goes on to that um, trickle down effect of my own mom's isolation because I was very isolated in school I was more worried about whether my mom was going to be there to pick me up at the end of the day than making friends or submitting mm -hmm. assignments and things like that. I always had this just like constant anxiety that like, what if no one is here to pick me up? What does that mean? And as I got older, I started asking my mom more questions about the situation. Like, was she scared when she woke up in the morning? Did she think things would ever get better? Was there an expiration date to this abuse? And was there anything I could do to lessen it? But my mother was always very clear that it was her, she felt it was her burden to bear the pain, but I don't think she realized that because she was being emotionally and physically hurt, so were her children. Mm -hmm. I think that sometimes victims of abuse have been living in it for so long that it starts to feel like they live in this vacuum and no one can help them carry the weight for whatever reason. And it just becomes their world. And while there are many cases where this is untrue and victims have strong support systems and resources to help them cope and escape from or recognize their trauma, my mother actually was isolated. So, Yeah. And I would think that these responses she was getting from her own family had to really contribute to that in her mind, that there's no way out of this. I, yeah. I mean, if she wasn't being, if she wasn't going to get support, if she did leave him, and I don't know what your financial situation was, but most women, especially with children, you know, take a major hit if they can even figure out how to make ends meet leaving a marriage. Oh, definitely. Especially My in a domestic work and 
And often there's financial abuse involved in that too, so that funds are hidden, things like that. So yeah, I can see that she was isolated. And and going back to you talking about uh, your experience at school, so your anxiety was so great that it interfered with your studies and also with your social life, you're saying? Yeah, I didn't, I don't think I had my first real friend until my senior year of high school, just because I felt so afraid to let anyone in to my world because my world is wrapped in everything that was happening at home because I went to school and I went home. I didn't have, like, we couldn't afford extracurricular activities or things like that after school. And I wasn't allowed to have people over, like, to even, like, work on projects and things like that. Um, On the rare occasion, we could manage it. But usually it was me going to other people's houses and working on things. So it always gave me, like, a fear to have to invite people over to my house so they would have to see what my situation was. So I didn't even want to risk having a friend and then losing that friend once Mm -hmm. they saw that like, it wasn't always safe to be around me. Oh, that just breaks my heart for you. So the abusive situation in your house would have been apparent to people coming over? Yeah, there would have been, it was kind of like an air in the Mm -hmm. apartment, you know, Mm -hmm. like you walked through the door and you could just feel like there was just a heavy feeling in the air. No one was talking to each other. All the doors were closed. We never sat down together and had dinner. There was mm. never like food in the fridge. It wasn't a fully stocked apartment. Mm-hmm. It was like people were sleeping on the floor, things like that. So it's mm-hmm. just very evident that it wasn't really a home. Yeah. It was like we were all roommates, but we weren't a family. Mm. It also just reminds me of how so many, and I include myself in this, when you're a child and you're in a painful situation, whatever it may be, you think you're the only one in the world. You have no perspective. You think I'm yeah. the only kid at school who has a home like this, or in my who case, I'm the only kid. It. Yeah. yeah, because you don't, you don't have any way of knowing different. And you know deep down that there's something very wrong with it. And that's, it's so sad because kids don't know how to find that out and they don't know how to get help for themselves. And it's not their responsibility to get help for themselves. Um, right. I wanted to go back a little bit to your description of your mom confiding in you and, and you talking about, um, you know, being kind of a confidant for your mom with information that was way too much for you to handle at that age. Um, and at the same time, it strikes me that the things that your mom was saying that you described to me also included showing you that this wasn't a good marriage. This wasn't the way she wanted you to see relationships, that she wanted to do the opposite of normalize it for you. And I wonder if it sounds to me and tell me what you think that she was at the same time that she was turning to you in a way that was not ideal. She was also in a sense, trying to protect you emotionally by giving you this perspective. Does that sound accurate to you? Yeah. It does sound accurate. I think that that her only intention was to ever prepare me and strengthen me for anything I might see or have to go through Mm -hmm. um, later on in life. She told me, you know, my mother, the one thing that she always wanted was a family. She was like that over anything, over a career, over uh, any other dream she had had. She just wanted to be a mom. And so she was like, 
to have the opportunity to be a mom but not give them the father that I would want will be something that haunts me for the rest of my life because I can never take it back. I can't give you guys a new childhood. I can't give you a new dad. I can't give you a happy mom. Mm -hmm. And like that, I think is the biggest heartbreak for her is just that she had wished so much for us and she wanted to do so much for us. And she compensated as much as she could. She quit her job so she could be at home more for us. Mm -hmm. And she homeschooled um, my younger brother and my older sister for a few years just because they couldn't cope with the home situation as much in public life as I could. Mm -hmm. Um, So she did as much as she could to I guess the way that she would phrase it is like right the wrong, but I don't think that she did anything wrong because when you're getting married to someone, you don't foresee that. You don't foresee them completely changing on you and being this person that you didn't fall in love with. And Mm so hindsight is loud and clear, but we don't have that until we're already forced to experience these things. So I think that she has never forgiven herself for putting us in that situation. And so she's always trying to do more, but she just didn't have the, like you were saying earlier, financial ability to leave. Mm -hmm. She didn't have a place to go and escape to because my grandmother and great grandmother would have said, you need to go back and fix your home. You can't stay with us. You built this life with this person. You have to go and mend the house that you built. And she quit her job so that she could stay home and take care of us. So she is completely financially dependent. My dad to this day has not told her any of his passwords on accounts. She gets an allowance for how much she's allowed to spend on food a day between her and my brother. Like she's essentially treated like a fourth child. And it's like how once you've been in that for over 20 years, I can totally understand where when someone suggests to you shelters and things like that and other places that you could, other resources that you could live to escape the situation. In her mind, she's like, I want all of my kids to go through school. Mm-hmm. I want them to come of age and have stability of at least a roof over their heads. Like maybe it's not the most emotionally stable environment, mm-hmm. but at least like they will have food for the most part. They'll have a place to come home to every day. They'll have school supplies. And if I go out on my own, I think that that would be more selfish because I would be ruining their lives and putting them into even more stress. Yeah. So she's seeing Um, what she's doing as the lesser of the evils, right? Yeah. Lesser of two evils. Pick your poison. Yeah. I got to say, I mean, I have to give your mom credit because I don't usually hear, I mean, granted, I'm hearing from a self-selected population a lot, but it's kind of unusual for me to hear a mom in an abusive household. um, And and I use that as a very general term. So like I said, I'm hearing from a lot of people where abuse came from both parents or came from parents toward the children and often the mom or the dad turns a blind eye. So that's that's a different situation. And, And I agree with you when you say that your mom very possibly had no clues that it would end up this way, especially if your dad, as you described, he wears a mask very well. Um, He might have shown her extremely different parts of himself only. And even if there are red flags, not everyone knows how to read them, and especially when they're young and they don't have a lot of life experience. And that is not the fault of the person who gets abused. Um, But back to what I was saying is that your mother is remarkable to me in that she truly seems to see see it from her children's perspective so strongly and also 
do the work that she feels she can do to make up for that and to care for you guys emotionally and in other ways. And um, I just think that's really beautiful. And it, I'm guessing that's where you get a lot of your strength. Oh, for sure. I take after her a hundred percent. She, I always kind of viewed her as a martyr growing up mm-hmm. where it's like, you know, she would literally rather go without food for days to make sure that we had what we needed. And she would even beg, beg her family for like extra money or things like that. Never for herself, but always for us. Like she was willing to do things that I'm sure felt humiliating for her or her ego just to make sure that we were okay. It was like we, we were, and I think still are her everything. And Mm. she's like, my life might not have been what I wanted, but the time for that is gone now. And I think that a lot of mothers feel that way. Like once you have kids, like they're like, that's your life, you know, Mm -hmm. and all of those things that maybe you would have done different if you didn't have kids isn't applicable anymore because their safety and their well-being trumps your happiness over anything. And it's, that's the hard balance of being, I think, a parent. Um, as someone who works with a lot of parents, as a nanny, as a teacher, mm-hmm. I think you see a lot of cases where, um, especially I think women uh, would rather lose themselves or parts of themselves or um, opportunities that might have made them a little bit happier if it affects the safety of their kids. Yeah, it's a real tragedy and a shame when moms have to make that choice, especially when someone is forcing them to in an unfair way. I'm also struck by the isolation in which your mother did this. I mean, think about it. She was giving and still is giving her children what she has never gotten, right? I mean, she doesn't get that support and that selflessness from her own mother and her own extended family. Quite the opposite, really. Yeah. And I, my mom has always navigated under the belief that you should raise your kids to be better than you and make better decisions Mm -hmm. and lead better lives. And um, I don't think my father feels the same way. He grew up in a very, um, I would say, abusive household where there was a lot of neglect, like I remember my mom telling me that he was sleeping in a closet for a while because their financial situation was so bad that he didn't have clothes and things he needed to go to school, that his mom was working such long hours. There was no one to really take care of him. Mm -hmm. And so I think that he then thought it was okay to raise us to be quote unquote self-sufficient in that way that like you don't need a parent's constant affection or love or affirmation to survive because for him the key was survival growing up it wasn't being happy or fulfilled or satiated in this familial way it was about survival and I think that's how the only way that he knew parenthood to look like because that was his only example See, I think it's wonderful that you can look at that and you can see the origins of your dad's behavior and, you know, possibly have some compassion for that. And, and I think that's fair. And I think that's great. I also would say that um, it's still your dad's responsibility and any parent's responsibility to try and do the emotional work necessary to, to be a proper parent. And it sounds to me like maybe even more than your dad having adopted that philosophy, that 
it's possible that it's more like he's normalizing his own experience, if that makes sense. Yeah. That it, it kind of um definitely it's a way of rationalizing what he lived through. If he says, Oh, well, this is, you know, this is the way to do it. This is good for kids. Um, and it also may be a way of sort of rationalizing the aggression that is behind it. I would a hundred percent agree with you. And I think that there's also this other added element of the fact that my father is bipolar mm-hmm. and it's, it's like almost a whole other jar of worms when you bring in mental illness as well, because I think that at least in my sphere, in my family, it's, he gets to scapegoat the abuse and the aggression and the anger to his mental illness. It's, oh, well, you know that he's sick. Oh, well, you know that he can't control X, Y, or Z, but he knew that he was bipolar before he married my mother and he'd never disclosed that. And he refused to go on medication once she did find out and they were married. Mm-hmm. And so there's all of these things at play. And I tell people all the time when it comes to talking about him, like we have a rocky relationship and I am doing everything in my power every day to dig away at the layers of um, the layers of grief that I have accumulated over the years in hopes of one day being able to forgive him for all the things that I saw and had to go through. But I don't think that mental illness completely makes you who you are. I think that you still have a foundational personality. And in my father's case, I think that he's a really selfish man to begin with. And then when you add on the the levels of the levels that mental illness can play on your hormones and emotions and things Mm -hmm. like that, that it was just kind of a recipe for disaster, especially if he's never been in a place where he wants to change or get help because for him, that's viewed as a sign of weakness. And I think in the black Mm -hmm. community, we oftentimes view mental illness, especially in men, is just something that they're lacking in their manhood. They're not strong enough. They're not capable enough. So it's a weakness. And I think all of this is tied into how he lashed out at my mom all those years and how he was so good at putting on this mask for other people because his whole life was kind of a mask. Yeah. Wow. So it sounds like he also wasn't interested in pursuing help for it in part because of these cultural reasons and also his personality. Um, It's really interesting, Emanuela. I can tell you, I really relate to you on this. My father was also bipolar and it's it's really interesting. Small world. (laughs) I know, right? And, And that's why I'm speaking from experience when I talk about, you know, always having to be on alert. And there are times when I would let my guard down because for months at a time, things would be okay. And then I would actually be mad at myself that I had let my guard down. Like, oh, I just walked in the house all happy and cheerful that day. And little did I know, you know, something was going to come flying at my head. Um, Exactly. But uh, as I moved through adolescence and looked at my family I'm going to try to say this without swearing, <laughs> but uh, yeah. then I have to be in so a real. category <laughs> on Apple Podcasts. But, um, you know, I would say like there's a difference between being bipolar and just being an a-hole, you know, like exactly. my dad, and I loved my dad and I feel that my father was a tortured person. He genuinely did feel regret for the pain that he caused, but at the same time, he couldn't go so far as to take true responsibility for it because- 
he had had real strong narcissistic tendencies as well. So that's that's yeah. kind of the point, right? It's like he still could have done work on himself and and the fact that he was affecting other people greatly with this. Yeah. So I really relate to that. It does. I relate to everything that you're saying too. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I, I, I think also, that it. Yeah. Go ahead. No, please. You, you continue. <laughs> well, I'm just thinking that another thing I was going to throw in is that we, the mental health profession, I think at this point, it's becoming more aware of connecting trauma and life experience with quote unquote mental illness or disorders as we call them. And it's just not that simple. You're not necessarily, you can be born with predispositions, but you're not necessarily just born bipolar. And it's so frequently can be traced to childhood and life traumas. And I know my father um, in many ways had a similar upbringing to yours. And he had a lot of unresolved pain and he did try to work on it to some extent. Um, But it took, my dad died pretty young. He died at 69 of early onset Alzheimer's. And, and interestingly enough, I mean, I've really come to be at peace with him. (laughs) I mean, I talk about how our relationship has gotten better since he died and people laugh, but I'm actually serious. I mean, I've moved through so many stages of understanding and my feelings about him. And I do also believe we're connected to the other side. So that that's part of it. Um, I feel like my dad is doing the work in a sense, but, um, but it's complicated. Wow, so beautiful. Yeah. It's really complicated. It's a constant, it's a constant confusing roller coaster, or at least it was for me, where kind of like what you were saying, I would have days where I felt guilty for not loving my dad, for mm-hmm. wishing that he was dead, for not being on his side and not wanting to claim him because especially when you're surrounded by people who have very healthy family relationships, the one thing I've gotten a lot is, but that's your dad. At the end of the day, you know, he loves you. He's your dad. And I would always hear these things and I would feel so guilty. Like at the end of the day, I'm supposed to love him. I'm supposed to care about him. I'm Mm. supposed to side with him and I'm supposed to understand that he has this illness. Why do I still have such strong feelings of hatred towards him. And I would cry to myself at night and I would work so hard to try to find a relationship again and build something back up. And then he would play mind games with me. And I would Mm -hmm. think that we're going into a positive direction where we're talking and he's like, oh, I love your mom. I'm working on it. I'm going to get help for you guys. And then hearing the next day him say to my mom, not even behind closed doors, I'm not going to die for you guys. I don't care that much about you. I don't care whether you starve or not. Like going from one extreme to the other with this span of 24 hours and just not knowing which side of him to believe and if anything he's ever said has been true. And if he even believes anything that he's saying or if he's convinced himself that he's this person, but he doesn't even really know who he is or what he wants or how to be a dad or a provider or a husband. It's just a constant game, at least in my experience of manipulation and cat and mouse and deception. I don't even know if he ever internalized that that's how I felt, even when I told him. I think that there was a mental block, a mental barrier that didn't even allow him Mm -hmm. to take in how much he was hurting the people around him because he can't, he couldn't handle that Mm. level of guilt. I don't think it's possible. I don't think he's thought about it to this day because he can't. Yeah, it sounds accurate. Just a little story from my life that is related is that when I was in high school, 
that's when I really started kind of standing up to my father. And for some reason, he targeted me for years more than anyone else in the family. I think because I did stand up to him. And he would just sort of emotionally go after me for days at a time. And it was, it was horrible. And uh, when I'm it was so over, sorry. it's okay. Thank you. I mean, it's, you know, I'm talking about it now because it's so long ago and I've worked through it. But, um, but when it was over and he was recalcitrant and he would apologize to me, I would say, okay, I appreciate that. But you know what? I care about our relationship. And so I need to talk about it more. I need you to hear how I felt. I need you to hear how it felt for me as you were doing that and how much it hurt me and how scary and painful it was. And once I started to do that, he would get angry again, um, which I'm just thinking what you just described to me, that it, he didn't have the capacity. And I think he did genuinely have the ability to feel guilt. So it was really painful for him to hear that. And um and then that's when my family members would chime in and say, it takes two to tango, Miranda. You know, you shouldn't have said all those things to him because that's why he's mad at you. Um, which, right. you know, I'm not trying to tell you a sob story. I'm pointing this out because I just think this is so common. It's such a common re-victimization yeah. of victim blaming. And it's, it's not okay. People need to be aware that a parent and a child is not an equal situation. And there is no takes it's two to not, tango. Yeah. There just isn't. Exactly. Um, and I hear your description of how you're, you're feeling this pressure and you're trying to find a way to love your dad. And I'm, I'm struck by the contrast that I don't hear that your dad is doing that on the other end, you know? Oh, no, not at all. And I think that oftentimes I think that our relationship must mirror what my mom's relationship with him must have looked like, mm. just kind of sitting there and talking to a wall just something that's just impermeable and you're just throwing all of this emotion and passion. And I think that to some extent, if someone is mad at you or disappointed at you or really frustrated with you, I think that that is also rooted in care. So when you're really mad at someone or you really are upset with someone, you wouldn't get so upset if they didn't have a part of your your soul or your yeah. heart that they were ruining. And I think that we had all of this emotion that we are willing to put out and make ourselves vulnerable to, even in anger. And he's just always been kind of neutral. He's never really cared one way or another. And I think that that's also rooted in the fact that I don't know if he ever wanted to be a dad or a husband. I think that that is a generational thing that maybe a part of their upbringing was, well, you have to get married. I think that... Mm -hmm there wasn't the same options that um, young men and women are feeling like they're free to have nowadays where it's like, maybe you don't have a partner. Maybe you are alone and happy, or maybe you don't have to have kids. When my parents were growing up, it was, you're going to get married and have a husband and have kids and have a wife and have kids. And so I think that my dad might've been someone who was meant to not do that, mm -hmm. but felt like that was the only way to get normalcy in his life, especially with his childhood. And sure. thinking that maybe a family, having a family would give him that constant love and affection that he never had mm -hmm. or knew that he needed when he was younger. And then when my mom provided pushback to that and was like, no, a relationship is more than me feeding you all of this love and you just taking it. You also have to make sure my needs are being met and that you're being good to me. Mm -hmm. The minute that he thought it was a two-way street, that's when the anger started coming out. 
because yeah. I think he just really deeply in his soul just wants currently, but also wanted at the time where abuse was so potent to be like loved unconditionally in a way that his mother never gave him. Yeah. That when my mom showed him some of his own flaws and wanted to talk about it and wanted to help him better himself, he felt attacked and he just never stopped feeling defensive about it. When you say, you know, maybe he wasn't meant to be married and have children, it makes me wonder, was he ever prepared really to be in a loving relationship even? Um, right. And, and families, families are hard no matter what you come into yeah. it with. First of all, every single one of us has wounds. And there are times in any relationship when those wounds are going to come up against each other. And it, it does take work. Um, raising kids, I know it just sounds like a cliche, but I mean it's it takes everything you got and it's gonna push exactly this button some days um yeah so and my and dad did not like having his button pushed I'm sure. at all because he hadn't come to terms with any of his own he did not find the self-love that he needed before he could love someone else and then yeah. to be not only married but have kids where you're just supposed to kind of be outpouring this love just for no reason I think that he never really got that kids don't have to earn your love. You're just <laughs> supposed to love them. Exactly. And he always felt like we were supposed to earn it or we weren't doing enough. Why should he work so hard to give us a good life when we weren't doing anything for him? He never got that. It's just part of the gig. It's just yep. part of the deal. It's part of being a grown up, and even the, the most evolved grown ups, it's hard. You got to swallow that sometimes. And no, it's not about you. Yeah. You know, I don't remember how you just worded it, but you referred to your mom pushing him to grow and and be a better person. It's, you said something like that. I, I think that's really yeah. wise of you. I think that's part, one of the biggest things that marriage is for is that if marriage is working right and if you get the support that you need and the help for the hard parts, that we nudge each other toward being our best selves. You have to be emotionally vulnerable and open to yeah. communication even with things that you haven't dealt with yet. Everyone has baggage. Everyone has soft parts. Everyone has things that make them uncomfortable. But the point of having that partner is so that you have someone to help break down that wall around the things that are going to build up and grow to be parts of yourself you're not going to like. And he wanted to, I think, still to this day, keep certain things about himself buried and yeah. keep certain parts of him that are hurt or feel betrayed by his own family or his own experiences for the sake of masculinity. He's wanted yep. to keep those things hidden away. And the minute my mom even gets within a one foot radius of touching that weakness, it's like everything he's got to break her down because he can't feel weak. He has to always yeah. be in a position of power over her, whether it be financially or emotionally. There's always threats. There's always, you'd be nothing without me because I think he's convinced himself that, it has to be that way because if he thought that my mother didn't need him for any reason, I don't know what he would do because that's the only thing I think that keeps him going is this belief that none of us would be anywhere without him or his money or X, Y, and Z. And the moment that we all have kind of started drifting into our own lives and making our own money and doing our own things, my mom is the only one that's still dependent on him. And so mm -hmm. he still has that hook over her. And I think that that's just all he knows is how to abuse that because that's the only thing that gives him a feeling of value. When the irony is what we really see here is that he's scared. 
he's scared. Yeah. He's scared that he's not inherently lovable, that she won't stay with him realistically, uh, you know, because if she had the means, maybe she wouldn't, or if she had the support from her extended family. But that's the irony that always strikes me about the whole you know, masculine cultural ideal is that it's not strong to exert power over people this way. What's strong is being vulnerable. And what's strong is doing right. the work on yourself. And these things, they're really the opposite of what toxic masculinity creates, you know, and I, I wish that we could kind of get that message out more as a society. I mean, I, I remember being a, a kid and looking at my dad my dad was kind of unique. My father was an artist. He was a very creative person and he showed his vulnerable sides too. He would cry in front of us. You know, he would talk about his emotions and his struggles. And, and when he got angry, I could see that he was terrified. I, it was just so obvious to me that this was, this was his armor. And I think we all know what that feels like, you know, when we yeah. get really ticked off at somebody else. Sometimes it's easier to lash out than it is to say, you hurt me. Right. Because we're all just human at the end of it. And yeah. that's, that's, I think, the most complicated and sometimes even the most painful part when you're a victim or living with someone you care about who is abusive or hurting you while also hurting themselves is just knowing that this is also a person who came from a situation mm -hmm. who has demons and things that they might not have dealt with, which is why they're hurting you. Because you, at least I, speaking for myself, often feel like I wish I wasn't so empathetic because I'm <laughs> always thinking about why other people are hurting me or doing what they're doing instead of like letting myself be hurt, instead of letting myself feel mm -hmm. like what I need to feel. I'm always not making excuses, but rationalizing to a degree that that other person is never thinking about me. My dad never thought about what he was putting us through, or at least gave no indication from what he showed me in my entire life. He never took time to reflect and sit in my shoes and think about how I felt, but I was always trying to get in his head and figure out why he did the things that he did. And it can be just really discouraging to know that that's not an effort that your abuser or someone that you've seen abusing someone you care about is going to exert in return. Yeah. Yeah, that's that's true. And there's that fine line between being compassionate and empathic and not accepting behavior from other people that isn't fair to us, right? I think that both are valuable. Right. I think that we all need to walk that line to some extent. It, it can be helpful to us to understand where someone's behavior came from and not personalize it at times. But also, we don't need to put up with other people's unfair crap, you know? Right. <laughs> Just because hurt people hurt people doesn't mean it's okay. Yeah. Yeah. And also, I mean, this is something that I, I talk about frequently is that sometimes the most compassionate people come out of really painful family situations. Some people take that pain and they turn it into anger and hostility the way that your dad has. And some people take that pain and they turn it into a desire to understand their fellow human and help them. And I think that that's beautiful that that's what you've taken from it. Yeah. And I wanted to hear a little bit more about what it was like for you to come out of this family 
I find myself surprised hearing that you didn't have many friends in high school because, I mean, I don't know you that well, but we've chatted a number of times. And you're, <laughs> you're just so, so social and so likable. I don't know. I would just picture a very different kind of high school situation. I understand it, of course, when you describe yeah. what you're going home to and what you're internalizing every day. But I wonder, has that, you know, was there a big change for you? once you got away from the domestic situation and you were there every day and once you were in college and, and it sounds to me like you've had some extensive therapy. I actually haven't gone to therapy. I only did four of the sessions when I was in college and they were with someone who was not a good match for me at all and the advice that they were giving. But well, when I was younger, I was always a wallflower. So I was watching and I was listening and I was paying attention to friendships and relationships that I was seeing in other people and in other people's families. And though I wasn't giving much socially, I was taking in a lot socially uh-huh. as I was very aware of how, how situations were lacking communication, how situations were lacking X, Y, and Z. It was almost like I was analyzing, like doing an ethnography uh-huh. on love and relationships and friendships. And though I didn't have them myself, I was invested. I was invested in figuring out what makes people do what they do. And I read a lot of psychology books because I was just so interested in human motivation and why our brains work the way that they do. But I think that funnily enough, going to college didn't help me escape the pains because my little brother was at home by himself Uh um, when I was at school. And so I was often calling home are you okay? Do you have enough money? I worked four jobs while being a full-time student in school so I could send money home because my dad would use like starvation as a scare tactic against my mom where he would just not give her money for food. And so then I, I still carried that pressure to help and protect and hold on. Even when I went to school, I was still working for them and having to be there for them and worrying like, Do I need to be going home more often? Do I need to be more present? It was a mistake. I shouldn't have left. Even though it was everything I needed to be away from that, I was still tethered in my soul to the situation that was going on. And it was kind of like that. For you. Yeah, that childhood. I can only imagine how much anxiety that contributed to your life. Yeah, it did. It was awful. Um, But I think that's also when I started talking about it because I never really talked about my family with people until midway through college. And I just, I think I was in a place and surrounded by people who were also going through a lot of changes within themselves and um, a lot of reflection about where they had come from. And that was also around the time that I realized I suffered from PTSD and I never understood, like, my main trigger is like, loud noises like doors being slammed Mm. pots and pans being slammed like even on the fourth of july i stay inside just because for me growing up um and it's funny because i it was like a light bulb on moment when i finally realized that but i would always just wonder why my heart sped up when i heard a loud noise or a scream or a slamming door Mm. and i was like well those are all the things that indicated that your dad was home when you were younger and that he was Mm. upset and in a mood, and you knew what that meant. And when I was younger, when I heard the door slamming, I would take my younger brother in the room, I would lock the door, 
we would play some loud video game or do something because I knew what was going on up there and I didn't want him to know. Mm-hmm. And so it wasn't until, you know, I was in my early twenties that I was like, Oh man, like this is chasing me in ways that I didn't even know. And so that was when I started practicing like constant daily meditation and I started journaling and mm-hmm. just being really open with myself, like dream, dream journaling, everything. Mm-hmm. And just kind of analyzing these impulses and why I felt the way that I did. And so I think that that also led to a boost in confidence okay. where I got to this point where I was like, I'm figuring myself out. We can do the work ourselves too. It's really positive mm-hmm. when you can get therapy or when you have familial support and things like that. But at the time I didn't have the money or the access to therapy mm-hmm. and I didn't have that familial support. And I realized that I wanted to have healthy relationships with people. I wanted to be able to talk about this. I wanted to be able to heal through talking about it because I hadn't had a voice for so long. I was like, I want to do a complete turnaround and I want to use my voice to say everything that I've been feeling for so long and not just to myself, but to other people because like my situation showed, you never know what the person walking next to you or in class next mm-hmm. to you or in the grocery store beside you is going through. Mm-hmm. And it can only help us grow as people, as a society, as women, to know that like your safe space should be like wherever you go. Like you shouldn't feel like you have to remain closed off or that you should be shamed because you've gone through something like this. Cause that's definitely what I felt when I was younger, a shame associated with not having a stable house, not really knowing what love looks like, not having a good relationship with my parents. There was a lot of shame centered around that. And so the moment that I kind of took that back and I was like, it's not my fault. I shouldn't feel shame for something that was placed upon me And there's no real point source to blame because everyone's a person, even that person that is abusing me. Mm -hmm. So we just need to talk about it. And so when I gained my voice, I think that's when things started falling into place. And I started being able to have these bonds with people that I thought were genuine because I was trusting again in a way that I didn't feel like I could ever trust because I had lost that trust in my dad. You took such a leap to just start opening up. I mean, it's a leap of trust to take that risk. And and I'm sure not everybody responded to you in the way that you needed them to, but that is the only way to be that vulnerable is the only way to really start to heal yourself and to have those kinds of healthy relationships. So I think that's so admirable. And it's another example of how silence perpetuates the shame and fighting through that and speaking up does the opposite, right? Right. I just didn't want to, I think at the end of the day, as much as I like love my mom and I do with all my heart, I don't want to live her life. And my mom has lived her life, her whole adult life in silence. Yeah. Uh, And so I was like, I can't be silent like her because she, she shut down at one point. She stopped talking about it when she felt like no one was listening. And so I think I did the opposite. And I said, I'm going to make everyone listen. Like, if you're going to be in my life, you're going to hear about it because this is such a significant part of my narrative. And if you're not comfortable with it, then you can never truly be comfortable with me. And if I'm going to start trying to form relationships, healthy relationships with friends and partners and things like that, 
I have to know that I can be 100% communicative and vulnerable about the things that I'm still working through and dealing with because I don't want to ever be in a relationship that mirrors my parents. I want it to be open and honest and I want there to be joy. Like what I told my mom when I was younger, I was like, I'll do whatever it takes to make you happy. I used to, I still do, but I would like pray every day and tell God that I would give up any happiness I could potentially have in the future for my mom to end her life happy. And I still feel that way where it's like, if I could do something, give of myself, whatever it may be, so that she can have the later half of her life be stress-free and resolved and she can get the help that she needs to cope and heal and really feel like her own person again, I would do anything for that. And so I think that this journey is also for her as much as it is for me, because she's seeing that I'm okay. She's seeing that Mm -hmm. that house didn't break me. It didn't ruin me. And I think that helped her start to forgive herself when she can see that I'm still a happy functioning human being and that that didn't, it didn't ruin me and it doesn't need to ruin her. And so she's okay. It sounds like she's more than okay with you speaking as much as you need to. Is that right? Yeah. She owns the truth of her situation and she owns the way that it's affected me. And she knows that it goes into my art. It goes into my writing. It goes into everything I do as a creative because that's who I am. And she is happy with me being vocal about it in a way that she didn't have the strength to be because no one wants to know that other people are going through the terrible things that they're going through. Yeah. Also, when you talk about how open you are with other people, I just want to point out that that's a gift to the rest of us too, because when you're that open, it makes the people that you're around feel like they can trust you and like you're going to accept us too. You know what I mean? Like you're so beautiful. Yeah. Yeah. And I really see that in, in your artwork too. You know, the messages that you're conveying in your artwork are, are so encouraging and empowering and, and empathetic. You know, you want other people to have the strength and the growth that you're always striving toward. Yeah. But, I want people to feel good. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. In themselves, in their minds, in your bodies, no matter like, cause you can't control the body you were born into, the genetics that you carry, the places where you were born, like, yeah. and the way that society works. These are things that we have mm-hmm. no control over, but we still, every single person, no matter how you look, what you've been through, how broken you feel, deserves to exist and feel comfortable and safe in their own bodies and in their own space. And I think that the more we can do to perpetuate that and remind people that like, it's your right as a person to go through this life with as little pain as possible. And we need to be making active motions to support each other in that pursuit every day. Yeah, well, that's kind of the perfect way to wrap this up. It's such a a wonderful outcome. I mean, we don't choose our struggles, but I'm sure your mom is really proud of the person that you are and what you've turned those struggles into. And I'm sure, you know, we're all works in progress. I'm sure you're still working on it every day. I can hear that. But I thank you so much for sharing that with all of us and being so open and being a really great example to other people who are struggling. So thank you so much, Emanuela. Thank you so much for having me. This is 
what we need as a society, yeah. something like this podcast, something great, a safe space where people can start airing out those things that we might all be feeling and start normalizing that it's okay to feel and it's okay to be vulnerable. And it's okay to know that you need work done. Exactly. Yeah, that's my goal. You really helped me do that today. So thank you so much. <laughs> thank you. I encourage you to check out Emanuela Israel's work on her website, soulsforeccentricity.com, her Etsy shop and Instagram account all under the same name. You might pick up some holiday gifts or just get an emotional boost from the beautiful images and positive messages. Come visit the Second Wound website at secondwound.com where you can get support and information and read about my personal coaching services. Also, check us out on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Second Wound. If you want to support my work, you can always click the Buy Me a Coffee button on my website to make a small contribution. And please share the podcast with friends, subscribe, and if you want to help spread our messages, you can leave us a five-star rating and review on Apple Podcasts. I could really use a few more reviews, actually. Thank you, everyone, for listening today and for supporting the podcast. Original music for the Truth and Consequences podcast is composed and performed by David Boyle. Thank you, Adam Pacchiana, for all the tech help and for making waffles and scrambled eggs on Sunday morning. Man, that was great. Okay. Wow. Yeah. That, that I'm sorry really... if it was rocky at first. I was like, I don't know how to start getting my thoughts what? together. Don't be apologetic. <laughs> I'm Listen, I'm still awkward in the beginning. My God. It's, oh my God. There's nothing to apologize. You did such a beautiful job. And we, I mean, we had to warm up together to do it, right? Like, yeah. Yeah. yeah I didn't know about your father being bipolar. That's like such a... We're going to have to like get a glass of wine sometime and talk right? about that. I would love to do that sometime. We got to get in the same When we finally sometime, meet, right? I would love to like grab like wine and dinner. And just, like, yeah. Yeah. But, but here we are, there. badass ladies who are working through it, yeah. helping other people work through it and yeah. doing our best to make this world a little less shitty every day. Exactly. I mean, I, 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 I think that we're... We're, you know, the goal in life isn't for things to be smooth and easy. It's to learn and grow while we're here. Yeah.